1: Last week, as you recall, Will and Dr. Smith went to sleep outside the Jupiter 2, hoping an elaborate alarm system they had set up would entrap a mysterious invader that lurked somewhere out in the shadows.
2: Dr. Smith, Dr. Smith, wake up. There's something coming into the campsite.
3: Call me when breakfast is ready. Dr. Smith, hurry up. He'll get away. What? 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 (laughs) What? Well
2: doctor Smith, ah! Dr. Smith! Shh. I don't see anything.
1: The lights are set to turn
3: on twenty-five seconds after the alarm. Look, look. There it is. I think. Where are those blasted lights? Ah, uh. <gasps> uh, I can get a good shot at it now.
2: No, Dr. Smith, don't! It's not an animal.
3: What? What?
0: Welcome back, folks, for episode 22 of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. I'm Lane. And I'm Kurt. Kurt, today we're talking about the 22nd broadcast episode of Lost in Space titled The Challenge. So, Kurt, are you up for the challenge of reviewing The Challenge?
4: I am. And with a training coach like Dr. Zachary Smith, I can't possibly lose.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Well, a few production notes before we begin with the story. This is 42-year-old Barney Slater's sixth script for Lost in Space. We last enjoyed his work for the excellent War of the Robots. And this is another good story which benefits from strong central themes of father-son relationships and the traditional rite-of-passage narrative that shows up repeatedly in literature and film. It also makes good use of our regular cast members, there's some juicy dialogue, and there's a nice balance of comedy and drama, and it's topped off with some exciting action scenes to boot. We mentioned before that 42-year-old Don Richardson would become the most prolific series director. The challenge was his second of 26 episodes. Cushman does point out several instances during the shoot where Richardson, as he'd done earlier in Ghost in Space, for a variety of reasons, allowed Jonathan Harris to take some comedic license with the script. I'll try to mention some of those as we get to them. This episode was filmed from the 1st through the 10th of February 1966, seven days spanning into eight. Now, the shoot did go long, but most of that was blamed on technical issues involving on-set special effects. The exciting Volta Blade sword fight scene took nearly two days to wrap, but it was worth it. Irwin Allen wasn't usually inclined to cut directors much slack. After all, time is money. But it was likely the intervention of script editor Tony Wilson that kept Don Richardson from being banished to director hell. Marta Kristen remembered that Wilson and Richardson were close friends and regularly enjoyed madman style three martini lunches together. Irwin leaned heavily on Wilson, so his support in these early days most likely helped Richardson avoid being canned.
4: Wow, well, you know, if it's the real Mad Men were ever to visit the Lost in Space set, I have a feeling Don Draper would have been all over Marta Christian. (laughs) What do you think?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. This episode aired on March 2nd, 1966. Lost in Space had been preempted the week before by a CBS special musical presentation of Rodgers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, featuring Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea movie star Walter Pigeon. For his part, Irwin would take as many unsolicited breathers in his delivery schedule as the network offered.
4: It's kind of ironic that it was Cinderella, because she was terrified that if she didn't get home before 12, her royal carriage would transform into a pumpkin, while Irwin was equally stressed out that if he didn't get a new episode finished by his deadline, his limo would turn into a Volkswagen.
0: (laughs) Good point. This episode also got a summer repeat on the 29th of June, 1966. All the regular characters are featured in this one. 43-year-old Michael Ansara was cast as the Alien Ruler. Prior to this, he'd starred in two TV series of his own, both westerns. From 1956 to 58, he played Cochise in Broken Arrow, and then from 59 to 60, starred as Deputy Marshal Sam Buckhart in Law of the Plainsman. Erwin Allen liked Sarah and cast him in the Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea movie, two episodes of the Voyage TV show, two time tunnels, and one episode of Land of the Giants. Some of his other memorable TV roles came in a 1964 episode of Outer Limits titled Soldier. Is that one you remember?
4: Yeah, absolutely. That was a great one.
0: Yeah. He got to guest star as the Blue Jen opposite his real-life wife, Barbara Eden, on I Dream of Genie, And a few years after appearing on Lost in Space, he played the iconic Klingon commander Kang in the Star Trek episode
4: Day of the Dove. Well, he must have gotten one of his three wishes if he was married to Barbara Eden. My gosh. <laughs> yes, I had a crush on her, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And Sarah
0: related a funny story about Irwin Allen, who had previously seen the actor play in The King and I. He loved the shave head that Sarah sported in that role, and let it be known he wanted the actor to shave his head for this part in Lost in Space. But Sarah balked at the suggestion he'd only do it if he was given a permanent role in the series. Hearing that,
4: Irwin told producer Jerry Briskin to, quote, Give him a rubber bald cap. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but I think he went ahead and he shaved it anyway, because we get several close-ups of that head, and it really does look shaved. Yeah,
0: I was fooled by it for sure. If it's a rubber bald cap, it's a darn good one.
4: Well, I mean, you not only see that the skin doesn't go up over his hairline, even though his hair is pressed down, but you can actually see the hair follicles, you know, in his bald head. So I'm convinced he shaved it. He must have just figured, okay, well, I I tried the bluff, but it didn't work.
0: Mm. It's a good look on him, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. 14-year-old Kurt Russell was cast as Quano, who gives his age as 12 in the story. Russell had already been acting on TV for three years by the time he appeared on Lost in Space. His credits included The Man from U.N.C.L.E., The Virginian, and Gilligan's Island, among other shows. He'd originally been cast to play Davy Sims in the earlier Return from Outer Space episode, but it was felt by the producers that this part was a better fit, and I for one agree.
4: You know, he was also in several fun commercials at the time. My favorite was Agent Zero M Spy Toy. It was a radio that transformed into a rifle and included a camera that turned into a pistol. And if you're worried that Mattel is training your kids to become professional killers, fear not, because it also included a harmless-looking fountain pen that writes with an invisible ink unless you put on the special spy specs that allow you to see the writing and perhaps help your children learn to read or write. That's assuming they're not using it to squirt the 30-foot stream of deadly acid <laughs> or, or water if your parents are watching. One of the ads also starred Alan Napier, better known as Alfred, on The Competing Batman Show. And you can still see those on YouTube. They're, they're a real hoot. Oh, man. Well, I know what I want for Christmas. <laughs>
0: oh, yeah. The actor inside the cave monster suit is uncredited. But according to Lost in Space Forever co-author Barry Megan, it was played by our old friend Dawson Palmer. Well. With that, let's get on with the story. The Act 1 teaser starts out with the narrator catching us up with last episode's cliffhanger. We open with Will and Dr. Smith snoozing soundly outside the ship in their sleeping bags. They're camped outside in order to respond as quickly as possible to an electronic burglar alarm that Smith has rigged to catch a thief who's been stealing vegetables from the hydroponic garden. Will's slumber is interrupted by the wailing of Smith's alarm going off. Wiping the sleep from his eyes, the boy tries to wake up Smith from an even deeper sleep, but at first he's having little luck. Dr. Smith must be dreaming hard, because his first shut-eyed response is an annoyed,
4: No, call me when breakfast is ready.
0: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, sharp eyes will notice that Harris has gotten his way, that dreadful light-colored uniform is gone, and Smith is back to the more flattering dark outfit. Eventually, Will is able to rouse the groggy doctor awake. Smith grabs his laser rifle and the pair roll out of their resting spot to confront whatever creature has tripped the alarm. Smith must be very groggy indeed, or perhaps he's mugging for laughs, because at first, he heads in the wrong direction until Will turns him around back towards the Jupiter 2. Racing back into the campsite outside of the ship, they can't see a thing, but Smith reminds Will that the floodlights are set to switch on Twenty-five seconds after the alarm sounds. Twenty-five seconds seems like an awfully long time to wait, but okay.
4: Yeah, it didn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, why have a loud-sounding alarm with a delay before the lights activate? You know, are you trying to give the thief a chance to escape in the dark? <laughs> it works suspense-wise, though. You
0: yes, know? it builds the tension, yeah. Bracing themselves for whatever deadly peril may confront them, the pair waits a few more seconds. Smith points directly ahead to the top of a large rock formation, where several of those precariously placed boulders start crashing down from their perch. Just then, the floodlights finally flip on, blinding our fearless defenders for a second, but as soon as their eyes adjust, Smith raises his rifle, aiming in the direction of the commotion, but before he can fire a blast, Will stops him, turning the weapon's barrel aside. No, Dr. Smith, don't! It's not an animal! That's when we see a humanoid-looking boy carrying what appears to be a spear climb up on top of that rock formation and cutting to a quick close-up shot, the boy has a determined hunter's expression on his face. Now, Smith is startled and confused by the sight of the boy. What? What? But confusion quickly turns to terror. The boy suddenly leaps down from the rocks, landing a few feet in front of Will and Smith. He lunges forward, raises his spear, ready to hurl it javelin-like into our stunned pair of castaways. Smith, who's still holding the laser rifle, but taking no defensive action now melts down into full panic mode. Instead of even firing a warning shot, he grabs Will and yet again reflexively uses the boy as a human shield. Trapped between Smith's precious skin and the attacker, Will yells for Smith to watch out, but Smith just screams in horror. That's when the boy, who's maneuvered even closer, lets loose with the spear. Fortunately, it misses the duo and crashes harmlessly near the main viewport of the Jupiter 2. I say harmlessly, but the sound effect they used struck me as glass shattering,
4: which really wouldn't have made any sense at all. Did you hear that? Yeah, but maybe that viewport was only designed to withstand being hit by fire extinguishers and asteroids, but can't really withstand spears being tossed by children. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Oh boy. By the way, Harris's reactions in this scene were a departure from the way Slater had penned the action. Smith was supposed to have dropped and rolled to the ground at the first sight of the alien boy, but of course Harris's back wouldn't allow, and Richardson didn't want to take time to set up for a double to do the stunt. So instead, he let Jonathan do his old comedic human shield bit that seemed to play well with audiences last time.
4: Yeah, so if his back ain't broke, why fix it, huh?
0: Good one, yes. (laughs) After they regain their senses from the boy's failed spear attack, Smith screams for Will to run, run. In his panic, Smith even manages to knock over the picnic table as they retreat to the safety of the Jupiter. But before they can get inside, the hatch opens, John and Don come outside to see what all the fuss is about. He's there, he's there! Professor Robinson and Major West race over to the front of the ship. Standing in front of the viewport, the boy has now recovered his weapon and warns the men in perfect English to. Keep away. They tell the boy to take it easy and promise not to harm him, but he seems unsure as he cautiously but quickly steps around them, holding the point of his spear towards them. He has the demeanor of a cornered animal, nervous but still clearly dangerous. Dr. Smith agrees. Careful, careful, we're dealing with the savage. Mm. John's acting careful, but not rattled like Smith. In fact, everyone seems calm except for the good doctor, including the ladies who have now appeared at the top of the ship's entry ramp, silently watching this tense happening. Trying to de-escalate the situation, John tells the boy that they're willing to be friendly if he will, but the boy answers only with another stern, Keep away! John introduces himself and tells the boy they're from a planet called Earth. That's when the boy harshly replies that he doesn't care who they are. You are enemies. Don pipes in that they're not, unless he insists on it. John then asks the boy to put his weapon away so they can talk. Softening just a little, the intruder agrees and shoulders his spear, but warns them not to attempt any treachery or he will kill.
4: He means it too. I was nearly run through by his spear.
0: Will introduces himself and then the boy announces that he is called Quano. He adds that he's 12 years old. Very brave, strong, and then asks Will if he'd like to fight to see who's the better man. Confused by the challenge, Will replies that he'd rather be friends. Sneering back, Quano takes this as a sign of weakness, or worse. He accuses Will of cowardice, and Will turns hot at this, retaliating that he better take that back. Quano's giving a definite Klingon vibe here, and that's not a misimpression, as we're going to see. John holds Will back and tells him to take it easy. Then he asks Quano how he learned to speak their language. And I always like it when they explain this. The boy says from his father, quote, he knows many languages.
4: Yeah, well, uh, you know, if he really knows English, he might want to pick a name that doesn't sound so much like guano. <laughs> 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 Just saying. Oh, man. Yeah. Dressed in
0: her PJs, Penny asks the alien boy how long he's been on the planet. Quano rudely replies that he doesn't answer questions from worthless and weak girls. And now it's Penny's turn to get angry. She calls him a conceited, dirty-faced little boy, a half-pint bully. And she was really hot. It even looked like Maureen was holding her back a little as well.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Quano appears astonished and at a loss for words by her reaction, as if he'd never heard a female utter such a word to a man before. After a pause, he finally tells her she's fortunate that she's only a girl. Otherwise, he'd make her sorry for her outburst.
4: Hostile little ruffian, some discipline applied to the seat of your trousers is what you need.
0: Maureen offers him a hot bath and a meal instead, but Quano angrily replies that he's not hungry, and he will go now. John says he's welcome to spend the night there, and Will offers him a sleeping bag, but Quano leaves the campsite,
4: adding that he wants
0: nothing from any of them.
4: Yeah, nothing except Don's honey knife, which he stole earlier, that is. <laughs> <laughs> Primitive little brute. Thank goodness he didn't stay. He would have murdered us all in our beds.
0: Mm. Normally, Smith's inclined to think the worst, but in this case, I was on Team Smith. There was nothing about Quano that would have made me comfortable having him sleep inside with my family. John, though, tells Smith that Quano may not be as uncivilized as they think. He asked Dr. Smith if he noticed what the alien boy was wearing around his neck. No, but I bet you did, John. And we're all on the edge of our seats, waiting to get a full report. Do tell. Judy says it looks like an ornamental necklace of some kind, but John explains that it was an extremely sophisticated communication device, probably capable of sending and receiving signals
4: to another planet. Mm. Now again, how did he know that, Kurt? (laughs) Tell me about it. I mean it could have been a million other things like a computer necklace that Twinkie wore on Buck Rogers or electronic heart like Iron Man had or some sort of blinking bling to impress the hose in the future. But but John, but John is always right. So I wouldn't want we wouldn't dare question him,
0: you know. Oh no, I wouldn't question him either. <laughs> Don wonders aloud what Quano's doing on this
4: planet. Judging from his attitude, I would say he's definitely up to no good. Now, I suggest we make sure the spaceship is well secured before we retire for the night.
0: <laughs> Judy agrees as she and Penny return inside. Before she goes, Marine lectures Dr. Smith that there's no
4: reason to alarm the children. Surely he's not worried about a 12 year old boy. My dear madam, when you're dealing with a dangerous creature, age is of no consequence. A one-year viper is just as formidable as a 12-year-old viper. Now, if you excuse me, I shall retire to my quarters, where I shall certainly bolt my door.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that little accordion cloth door is going to keep,
4: keep Guano at bay
0: if he makes yeah, it in the well, ship. You know,
4: except for that ornament on his neck. He's very uncivilized, so he probably doesn't carry a, a credit card where he can just <laughs> you know, jiffy that little, that little eyelet. Door hinge.
0: Oh, that's (laughs) funny. With that, the rest of the family head inside the ship as well. Bringing up the rear, John closes the airlock hatch behind him. And with that door closed, we can all breathe a little easier. Uh, uh, Uh-uh-uh, not so fast. Before we go to opening credits, the camera cuts back to the rocks, where out of the shadows steps a blank-faced Quano, staring back at the ship. He steps towards us, and the camera zooms in on that advanced communication device it begins to pulse. Dare I say, ominously, curt. Indeed. <laughs> when we return from the main titles, dawn is breaking at the Castaways' campsite. Mrs. Robinson is pouring hot coffee to the men seated at the breakfast table. Maureen's maternal instincts have her worried about how the alien boy fared through the night alone on this hostile planet. John stoically replies that maybe she'll get the opportunity to ask him how he fared, because he's already there. Turns out he's been hiding behind the rocks across from the ship for the past 30 minutes. Professor Robinson really is all-knowing and all-seeing. <laughs> Maureen says, oh, shame on you, John Robinson. Why didn't you tell him to come over and have something to eat?
4: Uh, because I enjoy savoring every bite of my donut and slurp of my coffee, knowing that islet brat is over there hungrily watching. That's
2: why. <laughs>
4: <laughs> but but <sighs> seriously, did you notice the subtle thing that John did with his hair and face when Maureen scolded him? He does his thing that my mom also did when she got self-righteous or angry. We called it the scalp crawl it's like wiggling your nose few people can actually do it but Guy Williams can do this and he can do it on command he makes the top of his hairline pull back an entire inch while widening his eyes and flaring his nostrils he usually stiffens his back when he does this too but thanks to the coffee he's a little bit more relaxed this time but you'll see this same gesture later on in in the same episode real soon so watch for it it's great
0: I will watch for it that was very subtle John wisely answers that you don't tell that boy to do anything. He has to make the first move but all this talk about inviting that primitive ruffian back into their camp has Smith concerned, as we can see from his wide-eyed expression in several cutaways during this exchange. Maureen announces firmly that if Kwano won't make a move, then she will. And the camera tracks along with her as she walks over to the boy's hiding spot, then pauses. Before we see the boy, Maureen calls to him, saying that she knows he's hiding back there, so he might as well come out. After a pregnant pause, Quano does emerge from behind the boulders. Green sweetly asks him to come over to the breakfast table, but he gruffly answers that he's already eaten. Hmm, are you sure? His word is not to be questioned. If he says it, then it is so. And there's a very imperious tone to his responses, especially when replying to this female.
4: Yeah, for a moment there, I was worried that instead of guano appearing, he would just see his spear shoot out from behind the rock and (laughs) run her through. But He doesn't seem very friendly to females at all, no. No,
0: no. Without another word, he walks over to the table to speak with the males present. He approaches the seated Smith and begins looking the doctor up and down with a quizzical expression on his face. It reminded me of how you might look over a very pitiful specimen of livestock at the county fair. And Smith is totally taken back by this, but he holds his tongue. Instead, John bids Quano good morning, which distracts the boy for just a second as he replies, Greetings. But then he quickly returns to his curious leering at Smith. And finally, it's just too much for Dr. Smith to bear.
4: What, may I ask, are you staring at?
0: Quano's wondering if Smith is a typical specimen of male Earth people.
4: Typical? I? Why, certainly not. I have a great deal more intelligence.
0: (laughs) Then you Earthlings indeed are a sorry lot. You are weak and full of vanity. (laughs) And that's when Don gets to throw zinger number one for this episode at Smith. He says, now that's the best description of Smith I've ever heard.
4: (laughs) Indeed.
0: Smith lectures the boy that regardless of how children are raised on his world, on earth they're raised with respect and good manners. You know, Smith's just not picking up on all the obvious signs here. It's not only Quano's manner, but even his appearance that gives it away. He's wearing this uniform-like clothing, he's got the spear and the knife on his belt, the advanced comm device around his neck. All of that just screams this alien boy comes from a world with a very warrior-like or militaristic culture. He's not concerned with manners, and he certainly wouldn't have any respect for this very unwarrior like version of Dr. Smith. Quano informs the group that except for his father, he's answerable to no one. Marine asks if his mother has any say. He replies that she always bows to the wishes of his father. That sounds like a marvelous setup, quips
4: John. Touche, Professor Robinson. We've come a (laughs) long way from letting the computer decide any decision that might upset his wife. But he might want to, you know, keep his sexist humor to himself if he plans on colonizing that rock with any new children. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) She's right there and she doesn't seem very amused. Fair point. Then John
0: asks if the boy's father is also on the planet. No, Quano states that his father is the ruler of their world, adding that on your planet you have presidents, kings, and dictators. In mine there is only one, the ruler. Smith seems dubious, asking if the boy means that his father is the leader of their entire planet. Quano replies proudly, yes, and one day he will take his father's place. His commands will be law. Don emits a low whistle, adding, what do you know? We're entertaining royalty. What? Royalty? Mmm. It's a stunning revelation for Smith. That word royalty brings a beaming smile to his face, and his demeanor changes from hostile to servile in an instant. He leaps to his feet, offering Quano his chair. He's practically begging the boy to allow him to be of service.
4: Oh, your highness,
0: your (laughs) highness.
4: Why didn't you tell us who you were? (laughs)
0: Juano flinches away in disgust when Smith dares to touch the boy's shoulder, but it doesn't put the doctor off. He presses right on with his acts of fealty, using mannerisms that are a bit over the top. For example, (laughs) I love this bit, he even drapes a napkin over his forearm, playing the waiter to the Alien Prince League. And it's embarrassing, and just for a moment, Smith appears to realize he might have overdone it, but Dr. Smith has no shame, does he? No. And by the way, this was another example of Harris laying it on much thicker than the script described, adding more than a little comedic touch to the performance. No one from director Richardson to Irwin Allen objected, and perhaps they were right. After all, the villains on Batman weren't being played entirely straight, and that show was a certifiable hit. Still, it's hard for me to reconcile this character with the traitor who signed up to sabotage the Robinsons at the start of the season.
4: You know, I keep wondering if Harris even bothered to ask permission to insert these ad-lib acts into the scene. We know he retyped his words, at least according to Bill Mummy. He would pull the lad aside and tell him what to expect... But as far as the action being changed, he probably just did it and dared the director to rein him in or reshoot it. Because remember, those guys were getting fired if they were just one day over the shooting schedule. So they were really placing their careers in jeopardy if they took time to reshoot anything. And Harris knew that. So he might have just used that pressure to do what he wanted to do and know he would get away with it. it. It really makes you wonder. At least it does me.
0: Yeah, it's a good point. It does make you wonder. And he certainly wasn't being reined in in this case. Smith's obsequiousness earns him no favor with Quano. He needs nothing at the moment, but Don just can't help getting in one more dig at the good doctor. He says, Looks like Quano's added another abject subject to his kingdom.
4: <laughs>
0: <laughs> right on cue, Penny and Will walk back into camp, handing over to Mom a bucket of vegetables that she asked for. And seeing the Robinson's male heir reduced to performing women's work strikes Quano as demeaning, and it offends him. You do the work of women. You should be ashamed. At first, Will bites his tongue, holding back his anger at the alien's insult. Maureen thanks Will, but without acknowledging Quano's offensive remark. After refusing to rise to the boy's taunt, Will calmly announces that he's going rock hunting. Quano then tells Will that he's also going hunting. They can go together. Will agrees, but then Penny invites herself along too, and Quano shuts her down instantly, brutally telling her that she will stay. She wasn't invited. Penny steams but holds her tongue, and the two males depart the camp for the hunt. But something tells me Quano's not interested in rocks, no matter how special they are, eh, Kirk?
4: Well, uh, maybe he'll change his mind when he realizes that Will only collects deadly radioactive rocks, you know? <laughs> the guano can have all his hair fall out just like his old man. But, uh, we'll see that later. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, that's a good one. After the two boys are out of earshot, Penny says to the others, Why that horrid little boy? And John gives her a reassuring hug, adding that Quano might not mind being called horrid, but he would severely object to being called a little boy. You know, it's interesting, up to now, John really hasn't made any serious moves to correct or even object to several of those rude and offensive remarks the alien boys made. I realize in today's climate, saying things like that could get you fired from your job or maybe even arrested, but I'm sure that even in 1966, those comments would have been considered
4: sexist. What did you make of how John held his tongue? Well, I, I love the PC paradox it created because, sure, it's sexist to say those things about women, but it would also be bigoted to correct or judge another culture as inferior to our own. Every professor knows that. Just because this kid is white doesn't mean that he's European or Caucasian. So you can't guilt trip him the way you would here on Earth. John has to shut up because aliens have a PC pass. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, I didn't think of that angle, I have to admit. So there's some real intersectionality (laughs) connection for you. Smith then approaches Penny to escort her back inside the ship. He comforts her that he's, of course, quite familiar with royalty, but...
4: That dreadful little prince bears watching. However, never fear. Smith is here.
0: Unfortunately, due to his delicate back, Smith can't manage to climb up the ramp without Penny's help. With a little effort, the groaning doctor makes it up and inside the ship. It's another little smile-inducing bit of physical comedy from Old Zachary. Next, we're on the hunt with Will and Quano. They appear from behind a large rock formation. Quano is armed with his spear and will has his trusty Geiger counter. The alien boy seems frustrated, complaining that will, much like Charlie Brown, trick-or-treating, has already collected a bag full of useless rocks.
2: you have already collected a bag full of useless rocks They're not useless to me I'm truly sorry for you wasting your time in idle pursuits It is unmanly. Now let's not start that again but it is true you are my agent still you act like a small boy. Well, what do you expect me to do? Go around sticking my chest out, telling everybody what a tough guy I am? You should build up your strength. Test your courage. I'll take brain over brawn any day. You do not understand. You've been badly raised by your father. Don't do that, and I haven't been badly raised. Would you like to know what I'm doing on this planet?
0: Will shrugs, so Quano tells him anyway.
2: I'm being tested by my father. Tested for what? For strength and courage. I must prove that I am worthy of being the ruler someday.
4: Yeah, well, he might want to start by improving his spear-throwing skills. He missed Smith and Will at point-blank range, but he'll probably blame that on the force field. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. Didn't think about that, yeah.
2: For a whole week, I have slept out in the open. Lived on anything I could find. Hey, that's really great. It wasn't so much. The real test is coming. Then my bravery shall really be proven.
0: Tossing Will's rock bag aside, he tells his companion to forget about rocks.
2: Forget about these old rocks. Hey! Come. I will show you what I'm going to do.
0: Will's annoyed but decides to tag along. Next, with the act nearing a climax, the pair arrive outside the entrance to, what else, a cave. (laughs) And Quano hands Will a spear of his own. Lucky there just happened to be an extra one of those lying around for just such an occasion.
4: Well, you never know. It might have belonged to the uh, last guy who challenged the monster. (laughs) And lost. (laughs) Oops. Well, Will puts down his tools and
0: takes the spear, but suspiciously asking what they're going to find in there. Quano answers that, you will see. Mmm, Chewie, I've got a bad feeling about this. Mm-hmm. Quano starts inside, but Will hesitates. He's not going in until he knows what's inside. The alien boy says that he suspected Will to be a coward from the start, but Will just wants to know what he's getting himself into. And Quano mocks him, go back where you belong, little Earth boy, back to your rocks and vegetables. Well, Will can't back down from that double dog, dare, so he tells Quano to wait for him. He's going with. Then, the boys cautiously enter the dark cave, which, once they're inside, it does appear to be vast. The mood has now turned very tense, because the music is telling us there is danger lurking inside. Will pauses again, but Quano taunts him, asking if he wants to think about it some more. So Will steps up next to the alien boy, asking, We're inside, now what? They prove their courage in the face of danger. Quano then loudly calls out, Hey! His voice echoes throughout the cave, but at first we see nothing. The two boys venture forward into the shadows. Will asks, Are you sure you know what you're doing? And Quano says, There's still time for him to turn back. Will may not be a prince, but he's no coward. If Quano stays, he stays. Then we hear these strange clicking sounds, and then some grisly hissing noise coming from high up in the rocky walls ahead. Both boys' eyes widen. Quano readies his spear and will follow suit. But before we can get a look at whatever creature is making those spine-tingling noises, we'll have to wait
4: until we return from this station identification cart. Oh, yeah, a real cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. You hear the monster, but you don't see it until after the commercial. So the sponsors got their money's worth on this week for sure.
0: Yeah, because you weren't going to leave that seat, were you?
4: <laughs> no, I mean, it's a great sound. You know, it's that hissing and the clicking. And it's like, what does this thing look like?
0: Yes. Hold on. We'll find out.
1: Boston Space will continue after station identification.
0: This is CBS. When we come back from the break to start Act 2, we're still waiting along with the boys to see just exactly what is making those terrible creature noises. With their spears raised in anticipation, Quano seems to be a little rattled and tells Will that perhaps they should test their courage another day. Will likes the sound of that, but before they can retreat, We get a distant glimpse of this weird looking monster as it emerges from behind some rocks in the upper levels of the cave. Can't tell too much about it, but its hissing has certainly put me on edge. Suddenly caught up in the moment, Quano pushes Will back behind him and shouts that only one of them can make it out, so he should go. But Will doesn't run. He remains a few steps behind the other boy, ready to help if he can. Regaining his composure, Quano steps closer towards the creature's perch, ready to do battle. But before he gets far, an inconveniently placed rock causes the alien boy to trip, hitting his head on yet another inconveniently placed rock. Oh boy. And that's when we get a really quick close-up of that beast. And it's a scary one for sure. How
4: would you describe it? Did you like it, Kirk? Well, it looked like the fly mask on top of the bog monster body <laughs> from the, the ghost in space. You know, I mean... I... At this point, they're not going to create anything new from whole cloth. You know, it's all recycled. But it was a good mashup. I liked it. Oh, yeah. And you're right. You nailed it. It was the mask from the
0: 1958 Fox movie, The Fly, that David Hedison, or as he was credited, Al Hedison, wore for that movie. And it is a great mask. And it'll show up again, like all good things. It's worth recycling, right? It'll show up again in a couple more episodes of Lost in Space. And that mask was created by 20th Century Fox's head of makeup, Ben Nye. And he would later go on to develop the creature effects for the 1968 movie Planet of the Apes. This was just another example of how Lost in Space was benefiting greatly from being filmed at 20th Century Fox. There were just too many juicy props to be purloined by Irwin's producers.
4: Oh, yeah. But, you know, what really sells it is the sound. The guy who does the sound for the monsters, he always comes up with great sounds for those monsters. And sometimes, you know, it's uh, slowed down lion's roars or amplified pig's grunts. And this time we're using, you know, the snake sounds. He's very, very clever about this stuff. It always makes even the most semi-ridiculous outfits be very frightening.
0: Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, you're right. The sound sells it for sure. Seeing his companion knocked out and helpless, Will rushes over to help. He tries to revive the boy, but in the meantime, that creature has fully emerged from its lair and it's moving in for the kill. At least that's what I thought at first, but just then, a stranger comes rushing into the cave armed with a weapon. Seeing the danger, he fires a kinetic charge in the direction of the monster. Which we can now see is clearly still some distance away from the boys. The shot barely misses the beast and it quickly retreats back into its lair and out of sight. Now, this scene, as written by Slater, was much more dramatic and terrifying. Instead of lingering up in the rafters of the cave some distance away from the boys, the beast was supposed to have leapt down to the ground in front of them and then charged at the boys. And as the creature closed to within striking distance, Quano was to have hurled his spear into the beast's fleshy side, causing it to scream in pain. Wounded but not slain, the beast would tear out the spear and then with a sweep of its dagger-like claws, send Quano tumbling against some rocks, knocking him unconscious. Then the monster would have turned its attention on Will, who, armed only with a small hunting knife, is backed up against the cave walls facing a grisly fate. Wow. Yeah. I hate to tell you all the things we don't get to see,
2: get yeah. to see
0: sometimes, but as you can imagine, uh, the network wouldn't tolerate that level of terror. So instead, what we got was a monster that stayed yards away from the boys, a uh, slip and fall for Quano, and a quick rescue by Michael and Sarah. As Cushman puts it, the way it's shown, you almost feel sorry for the poor old cave monster. I
4: mean, he was minding his own business until those boys decided to perform a home invasion and attack him. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. I did feel sorry for the monster, but then again, I have a snake for a pet, so I'm probably a little bit biased towards any monster that hisses like that. Yeah.
0: Anyway, with the danger over for the moment, the stranger with the Kojak-style shaved head rushes over to the boys. He tells Will to get back and then leans down to check on Quano. The boy comes around quickly and is helped to his feet by the stranger. He's alright, but that allows the stranger to lecture Quano. He says, "'Then I'm free to say how much of a fool you are. What possessed you to confront such a formidable beast armed only with such a primitive weapon?' Quano explains he wished to prove his courage to the Earth Boy. Instead, he displayed his stupidity. Mmm, that's harsh. Quano lowers his head in shame, saying, I'm exceedingly sorry, Father. So now we know that this is the alien ruler. Turning to Will, the ruler congratulates the Earth Boy on his courage. And Will admits that he was too scared to run, but the ruler says that even the bravest man experiences fear, adding, You will grow big and strong. <laughs> Feeling stung by his father's rebuke and perhaps jealous of the praise being showered on Will, Quano taunts that he does not truly have courage. Even the most timid animal will fight when cornered. Will rises to the bait, snapping back that he's as brave as any alien boy. Quano fires back that Will's just as weak and soft as all boys from Earth. And those are fighting words to Will, but the ruler intervenes, keeping them separated and sternly warning them to settle their differences later. He tells Will to return to his family. Will invites the ruler to visit their campsite.
4: He says, perhaps later. You know, the, the look that the father gave his son as he argued with the boy gave the impression that maybe the father liked the arguing and was deliberately baiting his son by praising Will. Mm -hmm. I think he was goading him on and manipulating him at that point, much as he will later manipulate the Robinson to accepting the contest later. But that's just my opinion. No, I think
0: it's a good point, because I did notice his expression seemed like he was kind of enjoying it for a second there. Yeah,
4: Yeah, uh uh-huh.
0: When Will is gone, Quano tells his father that he only confronted the monster because he remembered the ruler killed such a beast when he was his age. The ruler softens and forgives his son. Quano then tells his father that he's misjudged the Earth Boy. Quano's far superior to Will in all ways. The ruler tells him not to be so sure. He could be a worthy opponent. Quano solemnly tells his father that he will challenge Will to test to see who's the better man. And by the way, I should mention, I did like the ruler's uniform. He wore this really cool black tunic with this large imperial medallion around a studded collar. He had this big leather belt and those high boots really made the whole ensemble come together. I mean, I thought that costume was pretty and creative and it looked like something you could see on Star Wars. I mean, it was a pretty nice outfit there.
4: Yeah, or Flash Gordon. You know, that's probably where they stole the costume from, that, that department. <laughs> Flash Gordon, that's right. Yeah, that does mm-hmm. have that vibe.
0: Next, we cut to a lighthearted scene. Dr. Smith's leaning up against a tree trunk, napping. I I mean, supervising the robot who's being used as his beast of burden to power what appears to be some kind of manual drill apparatus or an auger. I'm not really sure. Other than being painted silver, this does not look very high-tech at all. But, you know, silver paint makes everything look... (laughs) More space AG, I guess. And it also looks a little awkward, to be honest, because the robot's turning the device's large handle by shuffling around this central circle. Something rouses Smith from his slumber, so he asks the robot,
1: Ah, how are we coming along? Task will be completed at 1,400 hours. Splendid.
3: What other work do I have on my schedule for today?
1: Correction, in reference to work... You should have referred to me instead of yourself.
3: Should I indeed? If you have a complaint to register, I refer you to the complaint department.
1: It does not compute. Never mind. What
3: else do we have to do? We? Yes, we. (laughs) Are you laughing at me, you bubble-headed booby?
1: You heard only my computer is being cleared. I do not laugh.
3: That's what you say.
1: Now get on with our work. Yes, our work.
3: (laughs) One of these days, you go too far, you... Cackling computer
4: I love that scene. Smith is sensitive to the sarcasm, but he can't quite convince himself that the robot is capable of it. He's not supposed to be able to laugh, even let alone have a sense of humor, but it did sound like it. Not since Robbie the robot pretended to be deactivated while he was actually completely self-aware have we seen such a clever mechanical manipulation of what's really going on.
0: I agree. This marks the first, but not the last time, our B9 will actually
4: laugh. He's come a long way in 22 episodes, Kurt. <laughs> you know, we talk a lot about continuity and how, you know, everything's reset at the end of each episode and nothing carries on to the next episode. But the robot is a clear example of how that's not necessarily true. He is evolving and he's evolving very quickly. He sure is.
0: Well then, Smith catches sight of the alien ruler and his son approaching. His expression changes from irritation to one of joyful anticipation. He calls out with a syrupy, Your Highness! The alien pauses as Smith, practically bowing and scraping, approaches. He greets the ruler as, Your Majesty! and introduces himself with a flourish. Wearing a cool poker face, the ruler says nothing in response to Smith's servile compliments. He merely offers his hand, which Smith eagerly takes. So this is going well, right? (laughs) (laughs) Smith must not be hearing that dramatic, tension-filled music we're hearing, because as soon as the alien grips the good Dr. Soft hand, Smith's expression changes to one of grave discomfort. And with the help of some bone-crushing sound effects, we can tell... The ruler doesn't believe in wimpy handshakes. Neither do I, by the way. (laughs) Smith's knees give way from the
4: pain, but before Smith passes out, the alien releases him from his grip. Oh, you know, I gotta tell you that when I was in military school I, I would dutifully escort my grandmother to her Presbyterian church every Sunday. And the minister there had this soft, disgustingly weak handshake. It, it just drove me crazy. Not only was his right hand weak and cold and pasty, but he also used his left hand to lightly cut the back of my hand as he shook it. It, uh. it drove me it drove me nuts. And there was no escape because he stood there at the door and shook everyone's hand as they filed out of that church. So Finally, I had enough. I started doing what the ruler did, and I just started gripping his hand as tight as I could. And thank God he started giving me an abbreviated handshake, you know, where he would hold my hand with just his thumb and the tips of his two fingers. (laughs) Oh, man. He's lucky they didn't let us wear our sabers to church, because then I would have challenged him for a bolt-arm match. (laughs) But we're getting ahead of ourselves.
0: Oh, That's funny. Yeah, I hate a weak handshake. That's terrible. Using the barrel of his weapon as a lever, the ruler neatly lifts Smith off his knees and back to his feet. But with a look of disgust on his face, the ruler lectures Dr. Smith. For a man, your grip is weak. You should exercise. Then poking his gun at Smith's stomach, he admonishes, There is fat around your middle. (laughs) Emphasizing the point further, he pushes his gun into Smith's soft belly, which is enough to send the good doctor reeling backwards and practically knocking him off his feet again. Gasping for air, Smith recovers and scurries back to the ruler. He lamely admits that he is a bit out of condition on account of his delicate back. But the ruler says that exercise is an excellent cure for many ills. Oh, not for him. The truth is, it's this planet. He's just never managed to adapt to the alien climate. Now, if only he could somehow get back to his own world. The ruler brusquely cuts Dr. Smith off. He wishes to speak to the father of the Earth boy called Will. Will. Smith tries to steer the conversation back to his priority, getting back to Earth. But the ruler's face darkens, and he closes his eyes. That causes a worried look to come across Smith's face. Is there something wrong? The alien tells Smith that he finds his ceaseless chatter most irritating. And Quano adds that his father respects men who are strong and silent. They can both see that those obviously aren't Smith's best qualities. The ruler commands Dr. Smith to lead them to Professor Robinson. Smith curtsies and then obeys, nervously telling the aliens, Oh, this way, please. <laughs> uh, Smith comes off as such a girly
4: man here. <laughs> he does. Much to the disdain of the ruler. Exactly. <laughs>
0: The final scene of the act opens with Smith scurrying a few steps ahead of the aliens, still bowing and scraping. He leads the royal guests into the Jupiter II campsite. He asks the gentleman to wait for just a moment while he summons Professor Robinson. Smith sees John working inside the ship on something and he calls from outside that there's someone who wishes to see him. John looks up and with a serious expression on his face gives Smith a little silent
4: nod in response. Yeah, this is where that other patent pending scalp crawl comes in that I warned you about. John sees the ruler and his back stiffens, his eyes widen, and the top of his scalp pulls back. He also picks up the intercom and he tells Don and Maureen to come upstairs because they have visitors. So he sees that the ruler is a potential threat and it's not one that he takes lightly. Mm. While they wait for John to come out, Smith scurries back over to the royal
0: alien guests and once more begins to chatter on about Earth. <laughs> the ruler appears to restrain himself from crushing Smith. His face hardens and he once more closes his eyes. Looks like Smith's really giving the ruler an anison headache there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Quano notices his father's irritation and tells Smith the ruler no longer wishes to speak with him. Smith gets the hint and zips it, at least for the moment. John, Don, Marine emerge from the Jupiter 2 and walk over to meet the alien. Professor Robinson halts a few feet opposite the ruler, while Donna Marine stands several paces behind. It's a tense moment. At first, no words are exchanged as the two leaders face each other, but then the ruler steps closer and speaks. He introduces himself by announcing that he is known as the ruler, and he welcomes this meeting. Smith starts to approach, but Quano wisely restrains him by the arm. John replies firmly that it's a pleasure to meet him, and offers the ruler his hand. Glancing down, the alien pauses for just a second before responding in kind. John, this is a handshake that could have galactic consequences, so no pressure, professor. (laughs) The mood is deadly serious, and the camera closes in on the two men's arms as they lock grips. The tension is rising along with the cadence of the music. There are several cutaway shots of both John and the ruler's calm, sober-looking faces as this marathon handshake stretches on. What I didn't hear was the sound of any finger bones crushing, and that was a relief. The camera pulls back to reveal the two leaders fixed on each other's eyes. Neither man shows fear nor weakness. Neither one will be the first to cry uncle either. Then, suddenly... It's over. They simultaneously release their grasp. And it appears that John has recovered our planet's reputation because the alien says with a smile, Good, we know each other better now. John asks if there's anything they can do for them. The alien replies that he admires John's strong handshake and direct question. He tells the professor that he will take Quano back to his world soon. But first, there is unfinished work for the alien prince. He explains that his son has acquitted himself well on the planet, but there is also much to commend about John's son. Quano blurts out that, I can beat Will. The ruler barks back to save his bragging after he has proven himself. Continuing the alien says that Quano's eagerness for the challenge has caused him to speak rashly that gets mother marine's attention what kind of challenge but the ruler snaps at the woman this does not concern her it is a matter for men to decide undeterred marine says that she doesn't know about his world but on earth women are treated as the equals of men and that causes an outburst of laughter from the ruler what a foolish arrangement In what way are women the equals of men? Are they stronger? Are they more intelligent? Do they fight wars or make laws? And it was again interesting. Professor Robinson said nothing in response to the ruler's very politically incorrect little speech. He held his fire for some reason and just stood there, arms crossed
4: in silence. Well, he's staying silent for the same reason that he shook the ruler's hand so firmly. He doesn't want to appear weak and invite trouble. If he starts whining about equal rights, he'll look like a wimp, so he just stays Strong and silent. Strong and silent, yes. That's my impression anyway. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I do.
0: Smiling, the ruler adds, this will make an excellent story to tell when he returns home. Don responds dryly under his breath, I can hear the boys at the club laughing already, so. (laughs) In the meantime, Will has walked into the camp and has been silently listening to the conversation. The ruler ignores Don, addressing John. He says that his son wishes to face Will in a series of contests to test their strength and skills against each other. There's nothing to fear. There will be no physical danger. John asks what the nature of these contests is. The ruler explains that they use these tests on their planet to determine who is master and who is slave.
4: Whoa! Imagine how our history would have been changed if we did that on Earth. You know, Based on the success and dominance of black athletes today, America would probably have been enslaved by Africa. So it sounds like a premise of an entirely different sci-fi series.
0: Yes, it does indeed. Mom can't hold her tongue any longer. She won't allow Will to participate in any such games. And the ruler harshly shuts her down. Her opinion is not required. But she's not intimidated by the ruler's rebuke, adding that Will doesn't have to prove himself to anyone. John quiets her with a stern look and a firm marine. He turns back to the ruler, asking if this was his idea. No, it was his son's, but he approves. Smith chimes in that it's fine for the winner, but it could be drastic for the loser and his parents. And he's right. Exactly. The ruler silences Dr. Smith brutally announcing that he is only concerned with Professor Robinson's opinion. He will make the decision. John declares firmly then, the answer is no. You have good reasons, the ruler asks. For the same one Marine said, Will doesn't have to prove himself to anyone. When the time comes, he'll know how to act. Will seems satisfied at his father's expression of confidence in him. Sneering at this, though, Quano says, like father, like son, accusing both to be cowards. That insult is too much for Will to handle. <laughs> Yelling for the alien boy to take it back, he charges at Quano, knocking him off his feet. The tussle is short-lived as John manages to pull Will off the other boy and restrain him. But still fired up, Will shouts, I accept the challenge! I accept! Now before we go to break, the ruler now appears very satisfied at this turn of events. He challenges John. Now what do you say, Mr. Robinson? And John solemnly replies, I'd say your son's challenge has been accepted. The ruler nods approvingly at his son. Then the aliens depart our castaways' camp, leaving the Robinsons and us to wonder, what has Will gotten himself into? And why did John change his mind after that scuffle? Hmm. Well, don't change that dial. The answers will surely be revealed when we come back, Kurt.
1: Lost in Space. Brought to you by...
2: Hi, darling. Hurry and get ready for dinner. PTA meeting tonight.
3: Ellen, please. I just got home. Don't rush me. Control yourself. Sure you have a headache. You're tense, irritable. Don't take it out on her. You need Anison for fast relief. The big difference in Anison makes a big difference in the way you feel. Minutes after taking Anison, headache pain's gone. So tension's gone. Irritability's gone. You're in control again. You see Anison is a combination of ingredients that contains the pain reliever prescribed most by doctors. So for headache, pain, remember. An aspirin tablet gives some relief, and with buffering you get some. But an anison gives this same pain relief, plus extra relief power, plus the power of an extra ingredient. So millions get fast relief without stomach upset. The big difference in anison makes a big difference in the way you feel.
0: we return from the commercial break to start Act 3... Night has fallen outside the Jupiter-2 campsite. We see John through the main viewport. He appears lost in thought. Cutting inside, Maureen approaches and tells him she doesn't understand why he can't call off this whole thing. He sighs. What possible excuse could he give for backing out now? Mom says it's very simple. Just tell him you changed your mind. But what about Will? Maureen knows her son will be disappointed, but he'd get over it. John supposes she's right. And she's relieved. Good, it's all settled. Tomorrow he can go to the aliens and tell them the challenge is off, but uh, uh, uh-uh-uh, not so fast, dear. Taking a deep breath, the professor grimly says he'd like to do what she asks, but he just can't. She starts to object, but he cuts her off. It's not just a matter of Will being disappointed. There's also the question of his pride. If he calls off that contest, their son will think he doesn't believe in him, and that's not all. He wants Will to meet the alien boy. He doesn't care if he wins or loses, but he doesn't want to cheat the boy of a chance to test himself. Maureen's not convinced yet, and she accuses John of being glad about the whole thing. John admits that in a way he is. Over her protests, he tells her that no matter how civilized or primitive, it's part of every man's nature to challenge his intelligence, strength, and skills. Without overcoming challenges, we'd still be living
4: as cavemen. This exchange will seem very prescient after we see how differently the ruler treats his son during the challenge. Showing confidence in his child or lack thereof will end up causing some near-deadly consequences.
0: Yes, it sure will. Just then, Judy and Don climb up the ladder, catching the last moments of the parents' conversation. Judy can't imagine that Dad's really going to let Will go through at the contest. John doesn't answer. Instead, he puts Maureen on the spot, asking her to answer. And I guess his argument won the day because she replies, Well, we can't go back to the Stone Age, can we? With nothing to add, John has a I-couldn't-have-said-it-better-myself look on his face, and the men depart, leaving Judy to ask Mom the same question I had. What does the Stone Age have to do with it? Marine gets a confused look on her face. I love this part. <laughs> and she answers, she's not really sure, but it all seems so very clear when your father was just explaining it.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: As you said, Professor Robinson is really manned up from the days he let the computer do all the decision making, hasn't he?
4: Yeah, that's for sure. He no longer needs the transistor tubes since he's finally grown a pair of his own. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere out in the dark, we see a close-up of Dr. Smith's face emerge
0: from behind a rock formation. Wearing a devious expression, we can only imagine what he's cooking up now. Several yards away, the alien ruler is seated on a rock speaking with Quano, who's standing at attention before him. Spying on the pair, Smith struggles to hear what they're saying, but it's no use. They're too far away from this vantage point. Smith retreats back behind the rocks, where the robot is standing by for instructions. In a whisper he commands
3: Turn on your long-range
1: audio detectors. I want to hear what they're saying. Such procedure Shh. is unethical. What? Uh, Shh. Repeat is unethical. Their conversation may be highly personal. I am not interested in your misguided moral principles. All is fair in love and war.
3: Love That does not compute. It never has. Well, you laggard, you're wasting time.
1: I cannot clear the frequency length. Try! This time you must win.
2: Don't worry, sir. I will.
1: That is what you told me on your last challenge. If you are defeated, you know what will happen. I will have to destroy the victor and all witnesses. It is our law. No one must be superior to you.
3: All witnesses.
2: I know, Father.
1: The boy, Will is young and strong. It would be a pity to end his life. You must win. I do not wish to continue. I was not designed to eavesdrop.
3: Who cares about your design, sir? We cannot let Will win. The ruler will destroy all of
1: us. But what course of action is left?
3: You just leave that to me. Now come along, we'll go back to the camp.
0: When Smith turns around to leave, suddenly he gets a nose full of the barrel of the ruler's weapon. He gasps in shock at being caught red-handed, and it was a funny transition. I thought Harris played that just about perfectly. Mm-hmm.
1: What are you doing
3: here? Just, uh...
0: Slowly pushing the gun out of his face, Smith claims he was just...
3: Out for a little stroll, Your Majesty, for a bit of fresh air. You lie, you
1: were spying. What did you hear?
3: Nothing.
0: Nothing. But with a little prodding from that weapon, Smith raises his hands in surrender and then amends his answer to... Hardly
1: anything. Whatever you heard, you will keep your silence. If you tell the others anything, you will be destroyed. No matter what happens, the contest must be fair and open.
3: Is that understood?
0: With a look of dread and palms still raised, Smith understands and assures his majesty so by repeating...
3: Of course, fair and open.
4: What other way would anyone want it? I love that scene. I, I was a little surprised the ruler trusted Smith to keep his trap shut. And mm-hmm. I was frustrated Smith didn't warn anyone else. But after all, the ruler said he going to kill them all if uh, Will wins. So whatever. Smith is Smith. So
0: many problems could be avoided with just <laughs> yeah. letting everybody else in on the secret there. Hmm. Next morning, Will's training is in full swing. He's racing along on an inclined treadmill at warp speed while Coach Smith keeps count. 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3. The robot is also on hand acting as the training assistant with a stopwatch and a handy towel for the sweat covered Will. Of course, it doesn't help Will that other than being stripped down to his t-shirt, he's not really dressed for a workout. He's still wearing his long uniform pants and he's running in his leather boots. I mean, they couldn't find any sneakers for poor Will to wear, but somehow the clotheshound Smith is fully outfitted with a sweatshirt, a baseball cap, he's even got a referee's whistle around his neck. I mean,
4: come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, when I complained before that Smith couldn't possibly weigh the 200 pounds they blamed him for throwing off the balance of the Jupiter II, I forgot to include all the costumes he apparently (laughs) snuck aboard with, including the giant clothes that he wore in the Oasis and the Friar Tuck robe that he had in Ghost in Space, and this coach's outfit he's wearing here. He's not just a closed horse, he's a closed Clydesdale. I mean, it's amazing.
0: It is amazing. He's always got the perfect outfit for the right occasion. Yeah, clothes make the man. Poor Will looks like he's on the verge of exhaustion by the time Coach Smith finally blows the whistle to give him a rest. After already doing 30-plus minutes at full-speed sprinting, Coach tells the young competitor he's got to get right back at it and run a couple more laps after all. How does he expect to get into shape if he doesn't work out? Hmm. Smith encourages the boy to get back on the horse with a slap on the back, which nearly knocks Will off his feet. The robot reacts with a warning that excessive exercise is not beneficial for an athlete.
4: When I want your opinion, I'll ask for it.
0: Our boy will lose this fight in the gym. That remark brings a scowl to Smith's face.
4: No, spare me your ridiculous jargon. And since when did he become our boy? He's my boy. I am the sole trainer and manager, and I thank you for restricting your activities to tending that stopwatch.
0: Uh, Smith's very happy to have his old punching bag back. (laughs) Just then, Don walks up asking how it's going. Smith reports that his boy is doing splendidly. But when the obviously worn-out Will pipes up that he'll run those extra laps for Coach Smith, Don intervenes asking just how much training he's done already. Before Smith can tell another tale, the robot answers, Since 0800 hours, uh uh-oh. Don turns hot. You mean you've been exercising that boy for three hours? Still panting, Will says that Dr. Smith said it would be good for him. Oh, I bet he
3: did. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Don tells the boy to hit the showers and rest up, and Will didn't have to be told twice. He races back to the Jupiter 2. When he's out of earshot, Don turns his attention back to Dr. Smith, who's busy shooting daggers out of his eyes at the Telltale robot. <laughs> Smith tried some pretty underhanded things before, says Don, but this one tops them all. He accuses Smith of deliberately trying to throw the contest in favor of Quano.
4: That's absolutely ridiculous, Major. My loyalties are not to be questioned.
0: Uh, and this is coming from Mr. Benedict Arnold II himself. I, I don't know how he can say those things and keep a straight face. Speaking of which, it's worth paying close attention to the body language and facial expressions that Jonathan Harris is using during this exchange. It's pure gold. Don rages that Smith's
4: only loyalties are to himself. Nothing would please me more than to see our will emerge victorious. On the other hand, if we were to be defeated, no great harm would have been done.
0: Except a will blurts out Don, and then an aha look comes across the Major's face. Wait a minute, Smith has an angle. What's he hiding? trying hard to keep his poker face.
4: It's nothing at all. It's just that I'm not too concerned about Will losing. After all, a return to Earth with a grateful ruler would do much to cure the poor boy's injured spirit.
0: Ah, that's it. Smith's favorite tired old song, Return to Earth. Well, Don's heard that one before.
4: And the music's still just as sweet. You may be content with your lot on this dreary, desolate planet, but I yearn for the green hills
0: of home. Mm... Disgusted, Don ends the conversation with a backhanded compliment, telling Smith he admires his consistency. Winning or losing doesn't matter to the doctor as long as he can cheat at the game.
4: That's great, Don. It's not whether you win or lose it's how you cheat at the game. He gets the best <laughs> digs, you know. But, of course, the irony here is that Smith is actually trying to save all their lives but he's too intimidated by the ruler to tell anyone about it. Or maybe he's just too conditioned to do everything in an underhanded way, even when it's a life-saving course of action. He's like that scorpion that stings his ride, carrying him across the river, you know, drowning them both, because it's just in his nature and he can't help himself. I just can't believe he's not letting them all in on this. It's just, (laughs) it's crazy.
0: Well, after the Major storms off, Smith turns his eye back on his old reliable
4: stand-in for Don, the robot. You tin-plated traitor! I enjoyed that scene, but in reality, it didn't really make a lot of sense, because who in their right mind would put Smith in charge of training Will, you know? I mean, you would think that that would be more of a concerned father's job, or maybe even Don's, especially since he now suddenly cares so much. But Smith? I mean, sheesh! You would have been better off putting Marina in charge, in my humble opinion.
0: Right, a fair point. Later back inside the spaceship, John and Don are doing some repairs by the flight console. Penny's reading her Nancy Drew mystery book when Mom and Judy pop up from below deck to offer their hard-working men a little coffee break. Don jokes, like the ruler said, men are smarter and stronger, but women make the best coffee.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, clearly they're teasing, but somehow I don't think you'll hear any dialogue like that in the new Lost in Space reboot, Kurt.
4: <laughs> no, tell me about it. Marine is the brain in that series, and John is literally a jarhead. But FYI, to any fellow men out there that let women serve you refreshments of any kind, you might want to hold back on the sexist jokes if you don't want your coffee too diluted with other fluids like, say, spit, (laughs) because cooks and waiters have certain ways of getting in the last laugh. You may recall Jesse Jackson once bragged about spitting in the soup and salads of customers who failed to give them enough tip as a server. So leave big tips and never tease the waiter.
0: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the girls don't take any offense in this case. In fact, Judy says with a grin that it's nice to know we're capable of something. (laughs) Penny says she can't imagine that Quano thinks girls are worthless, and Don tells her he has a strong feeling the alien boy will change his opinion about girls when he gets a little older. Everyone smiles at Don's joke, but the levity is quickly broken because we hear the alien prince's voice from off screen.
2: I like them now, but it is not many to pay too much attention to them. May I enter? Oh, why, of course.
0: The camera cuts over to the open airlock, where Quano is standing at attention. He's also had a costume change. He's sporting an outfit similar to his father's garb, complete with the studded collar and the ornate royal chest emblem. And he's also carrying a weapon similar to the one the father used to scare off the cave monster and poke at Smith's flabby middle.
4: Oh, flabby,
0: really? (laughs) He asks permission to enter and it is granted. Before he steps inside, he subtly leaves his gun at the threshold as if to say I come in peace, which I thought was kind of an interesting move. Mm -hmm. John rises to greet the boy, asking if there's something they can do for him. He brings greetings from his father and announces that the ruler has prepared a site suitable for the contest. The challenge is set to begin the next morning at 10am. Ominously, Quano adds that failure for the earth boy or a substitute to appear at the appointed hour will be treated as an act of cowardice and a penalty will be enacted against our castaways. That word penalty gets Maureen out of her chair. She saddles up beside the professor asking, what kind of penalty? That is for the ruler to decide. Mom's upset. There was no mention of a penalty before. And Don's also concerned. What does he mean by a substitute? More questions, but no real answers. Quano merely replies that those are the rules that govern the challenge. John ends it telling the alien boy to relay to his father that they'll be there. Quano advises that he'll return the next morning and escort them to the Field of Honor. Then he picks up his weapon and departs. Now the mood inside the Jupiter II has turned decidedly grim. This whole contest may have been much more than they bargained for, eh, Kurt?
4: Yeah, well, you know, to be fair, they actually did mention penalties before. The ruler said if you fail the test, you're determined to be a slave. And if you win, you'll all get killed. Although that last part... (laughs) That last part part was just our little secret, you know. Good point, good point.
0: Next, we cut to the edge of a clearing in the rocky brush where a grimacing Dr. Smith and the robot are waiting for someone. Smith impatiently checks his watch.
1: Well... Where is he? You said he would come back this way. My deductions place the chances at 90 to 1 in our favor. The odds are very good.
3: Obviously, you've miscalculated. Again.
1: There is always a margin of error, even in a machine. Only Dr. Zachary Smith is perfect.
3: I am indeed, and don't you forget about it. (laughs) Are you sure you're not laughing at me?
1: Reporting. Alien boy approaching. Alien boy.
3: I heard you the first time. Now stop chattering and give your computers a rest. Your highness. That bubble brain is getting completely out of hand.
2: If you move, I will fire.
3: Your highness, it's me,
2: Dr. Smith, your friend. I know who you are. for being my friend that is doubtful You may lower your hands
3: oh thank you your highness it was a very uncomfortable position well i must say you're looking fit in good physical condition for the challenge i hope i shall win i have no doubt about that at all but there is always the possibility slight though it may be that something may go wrong a little help might be of great benefit
2: My father says a man who does not speak with directness is not to be trusted.
3: Perhaps I was a trifle subtle, so I'll get right to the point. I can help you beat Will Robinson.
2: You can? How, may I ask?
3: There are more ways than one of skinning a cat, as they say. I happen to enjoy the confidence of your opponent, a bit of wrong advice at the crucial moment, and you win.
2: And what would you want in return for this betrayal?
3: Almost nothing. All I ask is that your father make provisions to take me back to Earth. Well, your highness, what do you say?
2: You are very lucky, Dr. Smith. Had you made your offer to my father, he might have done you harm in his anger. He is a man of honor.
3: And it seems that his son is a chip off the old block.
2: (laughs) For your sake, I will say nothing about this. But do not speak to me again. I dislike traitors.
3: Your Highness. Your Highness? Indeed. From the first time I set eyes on that boy, I knew he was a savage.
1: Statement. If my programming is correct, he is much to be admired. He has principles.
3: And I have not.
1: Is that what you're implying? Do you insist on an answer? At once! And you will not remove my power pack if I speak the truth? Just answer the question. Then I choose silence. Oh,
3: you do, do you? <laughs> you evasive coward. You deliberately blew out your voltage regulators.
0: Now, maybe this is just a matter of taste, but for some reason, these little comedy interludes don't bother me at all, Kurt. I was really smiling at at all of
4: them. Oh, yeah, no, they're hilarious. The good comedy is great, so long as it doesn't spoil the serious moments. And the timing and content of the robot's disguised laugh is hilarious. Smith is suspicious of the sarcasm, but he can't believe that the robot is capable of the intelligence that such humor would require. But he'll eventually get it. Not this episode, though. Hmm.
0: Next, it appears that the moment of truth has finally arrived. Outside of the Jupiter II, Doctor Smith, medical bag in hand, is waiting for the other men and Will to walk outside. Marine notices that they're packing heat and asks if that's necessary, John evades the question, but Smith thinks it's a wise precaution. Based on their previous encounters with aliens, they're not to be trusted. Again, takes one to know one. Right, Kurt?
4: Yes. A one-year-old viper is just as dangerous as a 12-year-old one. Lest we forget. And he's right. Those aliens are planning on killing them all if they win, but he just won't say it. It's so frustrating.
0: It really is. (sighs) Will's busy doing some deep knee bends. Asked by the good doctor how their champ is doing this morning, he admits his stomach is doing flip-flops. Smith tells Will, Never fear, Smith is here with his medical bag, just in case. Which brings a sarcastic thanks from the boy. Don says, Don't worry, Quano's probably just as nervous as he is. And right on cue, the other boy enters the Robinson campsite to escort our team to the site of the competition. But he really doesn't look nervous at all. In fact, he's brimming with confidence. And I never pull for the away team, Kurt, but based on the stakes, part of me was thinking that a draw might be the best possible outcome. What were you thinking?
4: Oh, this is like winning an argument with your wife. You know, if you lose, it's humiliating, but if you win, it's even worse. <laughs> <laughs> You'll pay either
0: way, right? Yeah. Yeah. The relaxed alien prince greets everyone, which elicits a simple good morning from the professor. But Smith can't help but put on a forced smile and bow once more with a syrupy, Your Highness. (laughs) You'd think by now he'd know that this is just a big irritation to these aliens, but old habits die hard. Quano is ready to lead them to the athletic field, but before they leave, Penny announces that she wants to go, too. I could see this one coming a mile mm. away. <laughs> She's brutally shut down by the boy, who tells her that females are not allowed at the challenge. She begs her father to be allowed to go along, but John thinks it's best for her and the other women to remain behind. And now Maureen's not happy at this either, but John firmly tells her that, like it or not, it's best that they do this by the aliens' rules. Wow.
4: Don't worry, honey. Next time we'll play by our rules. Assuming there is a next time, <laughs> Penny's very upset at this. She's had a bellyful of Quano's slights
0: and demeaning remarks. She yells that she hoped Will pins his ears back. Ouch! Such
4: language from a young lady—that really hurts. Yeah. Well, maybe they'll get lucky, and Don will videotape the entire thing on his cell phone. <laughs> they can watch it on that rock when things get really boring. <laughs> <sighs>
0: Well, as expected, Quano's unmoved by their distress. Feeling the gravity of the situation, Smith checks his racing pulse. The men depart the Robinson campsite with our good doctor once more calling out to the others, Wait for me! Wait for me! You better hurry up or that Millennium Falcon's gonna blast off Moss Isley without him. Yes. Setting a quick pace, the castaways are being led to the challenge by Quano. Dr. Smith, as usual, is bringing up the rear. He pauses to catch his breath, asking the alien boy, How much further? Quano halts but refrains from even looking at Smith, curtly replying, I asked you not to speak to me. Ooh, that's cold.
4: No, the pain, the pain.
0: (laughs) Then Smith checks his heartbeat again and announces,
4: The end is near. I know
0: it. Oh. With the act nearing a climax, at last the Robinson party arrives at the ground that has been prepared for the competition. There's nothing unusual to see, just a small table with some gear on it and a couple of striped, diamond-shaped targets a few yards behind the alien king. The camera lingers on the ruler who's standing rigidly at attention, with a spear his side, pointing skyward. The hour of decision has indeed arrived. He solemnly welcomes the earthlings, noting that they have arrived bearing weapons. Are they afraid? No, only careful, says an equally solemn John Robinson. Don retorts that the ruler is also carrying arms, but he counters that it's been many thousands of years since his people have used such a primitive weapon. His spear is a ceremonial signal that the challenge is about to commence. The ruler asks Will directly if he's ready, and our boy responds, yes sir. Then the ruler asks Kwano, are you ready, my son, and he is also ready. The alien king declares, then let the challenge begin. But before we go to break, in what appears at first to be a strange move, the ruler shoulders his spear with the point facing behind him, and then with a subtle flick of his wrist, he hurls that spear rearwards. In a flash, it lands in a perfect bullseye in one of the diamond-shaped targets, which causes the entire group to hold back a gasp of surprise. Now, I should have seen that one coming, but I didn't. It's a worrying start to what promises to be a very serious challenge indeed for Will Robinson. Well, we'll have to wait until after this word from our sponsor to see what lies ahead.
1: Lost in Space has been brought to you by...
0: Support for this non-profit podcast is made in part by
4: monster wax trading cards limited edition producers of science fiction horror and monster trading cards since 1992 for more information see the website at monsterwax.com
0: when we return from the break to start the final act the games are about to begin Will and Quano are standing face-to-face holding a long white rod shoulder height. The ruler is standing between the boys officiating. He explains the object of the test. The bar is attached to cables at each end to an electronic device a few paces away. Each boy's strength and stamina will be tested as they attempt to keep the rod fully raised above their heads. The ruler cautions Will to maintain his grip firmly on the rod with both hands. The boy who lets it go first will be declared the loser, both boys understand. And the ruler walks a few steps away with a remote control in hand. He then Then commands that they raise the rod. Let the contest begin. Both boys follow orders, and at first it appears that the bar is as light as a feather. Then the alien activates a switch, which has the rod glowing with force power, and it begins to hum. Right away, both Quano and Will appear to be struggling to keep the bar raised. Grimacing with extreme exertion, both boys battle to keep from being the first to falter, and the camera swings from one contestant to the other as Smith exclaims, Look at the rod! First one side and then the other side of the rod is glowing with energy. When one boy appears to be weakening, the light moves to the other boy's side of the bar and vice versa. The ruler explains that the actual strength of the boys is being met
4: inside the rod, which is kind of a neat idea, I thought. Yeah, and the building pace of the music for this scene makes it even more dramatic. We've heard this piece before, but it matches this moment perfectly. It sure does
0: both Will and Quano are nearing the breaking point, it's clear that sooner or later one of the two will be forced to give in, as the bar slowly becomes more and more difficult to keep elevated. Will seems to be getting the worst of it, although he doesn't give up the fight easily. Still, seeing this trend brings a slight smile on the ruler's face. The Earthling spectators appear concerned, especially Smith who seems downright rustled. Finally, the effort becomes just too much for Will to withstand. Expanding his last bit of strength, he's finally forced to release the rod and falls backwards to the ground. John races over to Will's side to make sure his son's okay. He's quickly followed by Don and Dr. Smith. John asks Will if he's alright. With a satisfied look on his face, the ruler tells his son that he did well. Quano boasts to Will that he has defeated him. But shaking off the dust, our boy takes it like a man, replying back to his opponent that he sure did. All he did was hold on to the bar and now he feels worn out. Dad tells Will that it's all right, and by the look on his face, we can tell he means it. Seems like he's genuinely proud that his son was giving it his best. Mm -hmm. Smith, relieved that the challenge is going his way, blurts out insincerely that, oh well, losing one contest doesn't mean anything. Gritting his teeth, Don rebukes, you don't have to sound so pleased about it. That quiets down the good doctor for the moment. The next challenge the alien ruler declares is a test of fear. Oh boy. Will's ready to proceed and we're shown another bizarre piece of alien sporting gear. Will is seated on a handy rock, and the ruler then places a strange-looking helmet apparatus on our boy's head. That headgear was straight out of Buck Rogers, skirt because it was adorned with all these coiled wires, and it had these three conical antennas on top. Don asks what's going to happen next. The ruler explains that, as you know, no man is without fear. This machine quantifies the degree of fear, creating an illusion of great danger in the subject's mind. Will's reactions will be registered electronically by a gauge on the control device held in the ruler's hands. Well, it sounds scary. Cutting to John and Don, we see both men are wearing concerned expressions on their faces, but they allow the challenge to continue. The ruler then takes his place and switches on that fear machine, and the camera slowly tracks in on Will's wide-eyed face as the cones on the helmet begin to flash and hum. We can't see whatever fearsome images are being projected into Will's brain, but the music is telling us it isn't pretty, Kurt.
4: Yeah, you know, I love that montage, but like you said, we can't see what's going on in his brain. And I felt like they really wasted an opportunity to do exactly that. When they zoom in on that machine dial... I really expected several strobe-like cuts into a dark limbo set that Lost in Space is so famous for using. You know, the ones where there's no walls or expensive sets, just a character surrounded by darkness. And in this case, it could be Will, and he's in that dark area with a low-lying dry ice fog on the floor. And then he could look confused and call it, you know, where am I? Don, Dad, where are you? With the dreamlike echo added to his voice, you know, and suddenly have some recycled monster appear, roar, and start to chase him. And then they could cut back to the dial on the machine, you know, pegging out while Will is twitching under the helmet. But alas, no such luck. They don't give us any images of what Will actually saw. That was just a bit of a letdown, but it was still a super cool concept. And as far as I know, the first space story to use that idea was Frank Herbert's Dune. Where the Ben Jesuit used a similar device in order to psychically create pain in the imagination Mm. of of their test subjects. Now, interestingly enough, that book was first published on August 1st of 1965, just seven months before this episode aired. So, coincidence? I think not.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I did not make that connection. Cool.
4: Next, it's the
0: stoic-looking Quano's turn to wear the agonizer helmet. He also appears to be getting the full fear factor treatment because the camera pans once more over to the gauge on the control box and the needle seems to be going just as wild as before.
4: You know, honestly, that agonizer helmet looked more to me like the futuristic hairstyling helmet that they used on Judy in an earlier episode. Remember that? Yes. Maybe that's the terrifying image the boys are imagining while the needles are pegging out. They're seeing themselves (laughs) getting girly hairdos. Oh, the
0: well, I probably don't have to even add this, but we will see this helmet again. <laughs> many, many times. Yes. So then we transition to a short montage that shows a series of tests using different kinds of cutting-edge devices that test each boy's courage, strength, and skills. Cybernetic rock crushing and marksmanship with some of those alien kinetic weapons. Will seems to be holding his own in the challenge.
4: I got a real chuckle out of that target shooting scene. They are both side by side and both shoot the bullseyes before them, but although you can see the sparks leave Will's gun first, it's Guano's target that explodes first, and then Will's. So either Will's explosive bullets are a lot slower at reaching their target than Guano's, or else they're actually shooting at each other's target instead of their own. <laughs> yeah, it's weird.
0: Well, I didn't catch that. You really were paying close attention. Good catch there. But you, you're calling him Guano, Kurt. I don't know <laughs> yeah, <if you're...
4: laughs> I, I know. Every time I see him, I, all I think of is Guano. I'm sorry. I, I can't <laughs> change it. He will forever be in my mind. I, I can't even think of him as Kurt anymore, thank goodness. It's Guano. <laughs> That's funny.
0: Well, then there's a pause in the action. The camera opens on a satisfied-looking Will's face. He's lying stomach down on the training table, getting a well-deserved back muscle massage from Coach Smith. Will asks how the score stands now, sounding a little less than thrilled. Smith tells the boy that he and Guano are tied. Uh, I guess the ruler was correct. Will is a worthy opponent. Knowing what the stakes are, that can't be good news to Doctor Smith.
4: Yeah, but you just called him Guano too. <laughs> It's contagious! (laughs) It is. Darn it!
0: (laughs) Will, on the other hand, is pleased as punch, telling the doctor that he didn't do so bad after all. Uh, That would depend on how you look at it. Well, there's still one contest left, says the boy. He can still win, looking around to make sure there's no eavesdroppers. Smith lowers his voice. He tells Will that he's done too well. What? He adds, there's still hope, though. He can still lose the last challenge. That causes Will to bolt upright. You want me to lose? Smith answers the boy, to be perfectly honest, yes. And Will's really befuddled by this. But the doctor continues, our champ's already covered himself in glory by performing so well. There's nothing left to be proved by defeating Quano. On the other hand, if he should allow the alien boy to win, they might talk the ruler into taking them all back to Earth. Will summarizes, in other words, you think I should throw the contest. Shh. (laughs) (laughs) That's too direct and dangerous to be uttered out loud for Smith. He shushes Will, then asks the boy, "Well, how about it? Will's disappointed in Smith, telling him that he doesn't think he understands what the challenge means to him. He's not just doing this for himself. It's like he's representing every boy on Earth versus every boy from another
4: planet. You're a very noble young man, William, but sometimes I wish you were just a little bit less honest. Life would be a great deal easier.
0: Oh, he really is the ultimate man-child. Even a 12-year-old has more scruples than Dr. Smith. hmm But this last gambit by Smith seemed very risky. I get it that he's afraid what will happen to them if Quano loses, but the ruler also directly threatened to destroy Smith if he tried to throw the match. How did that bit strike you, Kurt?
4: Uh well it was interesting but you know there was an out here that I'm surprised Dr. Zachary Smith didn't think of. The ruler told him he couldn't tell anyone, but he didn't tell him that the robot couldn't tell anyone. So the robot yeah. heard the conversation. He could have had the robot uh, warn everyone, but anyway, I digress. That's a good point. Yeah, interesting. But that would have cheated us out of the suspense of watching the contest, so, you know. Yeah, exactly. Just then, John
0: and Don walk over to announce that the rest break is almost over. Will's ready when they are, but Don notices that the Ruler and Quano are having a disagreement over something. Everyone's attention is drawn to what appears to be a very serious discussion. Since our team can't hear their words, they can only wonder about what all the fuss is about. But we get to hear. Quano tells his father that he knows he can beat Will. The ruler declares flatly that the Earth Boy is a worthy opponent. Despite Quano's plea that he be allowed to prove he's superior in the last contest, the alien king refuses. He will not risk his son's defeat. He turns his back on Quano to inform the Earthlings of his decision. He only gets a few steps away before the son shouts again for his father to please allow him his chance. Halting in his tracks but without turning to face his son, the ruler repeats, It will be as he has decided. Quano blurts out his fear that his father doesn't believe in him. Unmoved, the ruler simply snaps, That is enough, and continues towards Team Robinson. Wow. Now, for me, that was a powerful scene, Kurt, and it did book in perfectly with the explanation that John had given to Maureen for allowing Will to take the challenge in the first place. You remember when he explicitly said that if he hadn't allowed it, I think you pointed this out, Will would think his father had lost confidence in him. Something harder to swallow than losing a game. It's too bad the ruler hadn't been listening in on that conversation.
4: Yeah, I guess he needs his own benign 9 robot. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, our team is understandably curious at what's going on as the ruler approaches with a downhearted Quano in tow. Calling to Mr. Robinson, he declares that the challenge will continue, but without his son. The ruler explains that he will take his son's place and John will take Will's. It is one of their laws that if a contestant withdraws, he may appoint a substitute. John asks a very appropriate hypothetical question. What if he refuses? A wry smile crosses the ruler's face. In such an event, John's son will know that he's a coward. Don offers to be Will's substitute, but the ruler declines, saying that they are ill-matched. It's John Robinson or no dice. John asks how they will settle it. The ruler suggests they test themselves in a duel with the Volta Blades. Huh. The Volta Blades. Now this sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. The climax of our story opens on yet another interesting piece of alien technology that in this case is ahead of its time. It appears to be some kind of a force generator with cables snaking away from the housing that's covered in pulsing lights. The camera pulls back to reveal those cables are attached to a pair of space-age fencing foils, one in John Robinson's hand and one in the ruler's. The contestants are facing each other a couple of paces apart, and both men are wearing these... These kind of interesting flash goggles to protect their eyes. Yeah,
4: which look kind of goofy. Yeah.
0: yeah, they did. A quick ceremonial crossing of the blades causes both men's weapons to spark. <laughs> In a short but intense flash. Volta blades, now I understand. Are we about to see the return of Zoro Kurt, or will this be a preview of Return of the Jedi?
4: Well, we get both. And I bet the 1966 audience must have flipped their lids over this scene. Zorro with lightsabers on TV 11 years before Star Wars opens at the theaters. Clearly, Lucas was inspired by this scene. Oh, he had to be. He had to be. Yeah. John
0: announces that he also understands. He salutes the leader with his blade, and then each man withdraws to their corner before they begin the match. John whispers for John to watch himself. Those blades must be carrying at least 50,000 volts. Hey, that's just about what the robot punches.
4: Yeah, everything's 50,000 volts on this show. (laughs) I know. They even recycle their electrical lines. (laughs) (laughs) Something tells
0: me John didn't need to be told to be careful. He seems very focused at the moment. The music is winding up for this battle of galactic gladiators as the ruler reports that he is ready. All this drama, though, is getting the better of Smith, and he seems to be on the verge of a coronary (laughs) muttering, Oh dear, oh dear, to himself. Then John signals he's ready as well, and the two men approach, and without another word, the fight begins. I thought it was a very cool duel because there's a lot of swashbuckling action and the drama the sword plays definitely enhanced by the fact that when those Volta blades clash we get more of those intense crackling electrical charges being released.
4: Yeah but you know I kind of felt sorry for the ruler here of all the earthlings that he challenges to a duel with swords it happens to be Zoro, you know I don't know where he learned English but he obviously wasn't watching TV at least not the Disney Channel. <laughs> That's great.
0: Well by the way the effects were not realized with expensive opticals or animations, but through on-stage practical effects. Each of those swords was actually connected to an arc-welding generator to achieve the flashing sparks. It was a simple but effective way to produce a very exciting sequence. Even if it wasn't 50,000 volts, it wasn't risk-free, which makes it all the more impressive that the entire duel was performed by Guy Williams, and Michael and Sarah performed most of his side of the fight, with just a few of the rulers' more acrobatic moves being handled by a stunt double.
4: Aha! I knew it! I said earlier, I thought in Sir when ahead and shaved his head even though he asked for a permanent part on the show in exchange for that but you know Irwin refused him but the close-ups of his bald head just looked too real to be rubber and then during this duel there were several shots from behind where you could see these big wrinkles in his head and i thought oh well maybe i'm wrong because that does look like a rubber cap but if he used a double that would be the parts where he would use the doubles when he's not facing the the camera. We've just seen the and of course the stunt double's not going to uh, shave his head. He's just going to wear the rubber cap. So that explains that. Yeah, good point.
0: Well, the battle rages on for several action-filled, intense moments. At one point, the leader nearly splits John in two with his electronic sword, but the professor dodges his blade and instead the alien hits a nearby tree, causing it to explode in a flash of flames. It's an effectively staged and shot clash of equals worthy of the best lightsaber battles and all without CGI. But this is a little too intense for Dr. Smith, who's seen once more checking his racing heartbeat with his trusty stethoscope. But in one of the sillier moments, he can't seem to find any beat at all. Of course, it's because in all the excitement, he forgot to put the earphones in. (laughs) I thought that was kind of silly, but anyway, he figures it out. He's relieved to confirm that, oh, he's not dead. Good.
4: (laughs) Yeah, the comedy was a little hard to follow in all the intense excitement, but when I finally figured out, it's because he doesn't have his earpieces in, and that's why I can't hear his heartbeat. I did laugh out loud, and I'm sure yeah. I'm not the only one.
0: The duel is nearing its climax as a concerned Don and Will look on. John's being backed up, and the ruler for the moment seems to be getting the better of his worthy opponent. He lunges towards John, but once more he manages to avoid being run through. Instead, the alien's sword hits a boulder, exploding large chunks off of it. During a cutaway shot, Quano, who's also been watching the fight intensely, suddenly grabs the spear and without a word or warning departs the area.
4: Hmm. Yeah, we don't know why the boy left at this point, but it made sense that he waited until he was confident that his dad was gonna win. Well then, after
0: Quano leaves, that's when the tide begins to shift though. Now it's John who has the ruler backpedaling and taking cover behind another large tree. John neatly swings his blade down and the tree splits in two with another fearsome explosion. With the momentum on his side, John continues to press his advantage. His thrusts and parries become ever fiercer until finally, he manages to knock the sword clean out of the ruler's hand. Defenseless, the ruler appears stunned at this unexpected turn of events. He's prepared for the coup de grace, but instead, John pauses, then picks up the alien's weapon, offering it back to him. The ruler refrains from accepting it. He states in a noble tone that the contest is over, and that brings a sigh of relief to Don and Will. John then throws both of the Volta blades onto the ground, and the alien removes his flash goggles and compliments Professor Robinson, saying that he fights well. Dripping with sweat, John removes his goggles, answering, Thank you, but don't ask me to do it again. Rejoining the others, he tells Don that every muscle in his body is aching. Hmm, yeah. Smith's still waiting for the axe to fall, but for the moment, the ruler appears a little overwhelmed at what's happened. He's making no threatening moves against the Robinsons, at least not yet. He turns the switch off of the voltage generator, but then discovers that Quano is missing. He asks the Earthlings where he is. Will tells the ruler that Quano left before the match was over, adding that he was real hurt you didn't let him finish the challenge. The ruler realizes that he made a mistake trying to protect Quano. He should have let him continue the contest. Yeah, coulda, woulda, shoulda. Mm Mm-hmm. Will tells him that Quano took the spear with him, but why would he want such a primitive weapon? Will knows. The cave! He's gone back to the cave to fight the monster! At first, the ruler scoffs at the suggestion. Quano wouldn't be foolish enough to try that again, But John can't think of a better way for a boy whose pride's been damaged to prove himself to his father. The ruler is swayed by John's words and takes off after his boy.
4: I'm glad the ruler didn't get too offended by the earthling lecturing him on child psychology. This coming Mm -hmm. from the same insane species that believes women are equal to men. But the professor can never pass up an opportunity to show off his knowledge, even to a ruler who is secretly contemplating whether or not he's going to let this blowhard live or not.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, the Robinsons hesitate for a moment and then follow after the ruler, perhaps they can help. Back inside the entrance to that cave, the alien boy, spear in hand, enters. He challenges the beast to show himself, announcing that he is Quano, son of a brave and mighty ruler. Then we hear the gruesome, slithering hisses of that beast up in the rafters of the cavern. It slowly creeps out from behind one of the rocks. Quano's not frightened this time, shouting for the beast to come forth, so he can prove his great courage. And for a moment we get another really good look at that weird creature, and this time the beast does appear ready to attack. He raises his arms up and looks as if he's prepared to leap down where Quano's standing. Quano raises his spear in readiness, but before he can strike, the ruler comes rushing into the cave. He joins his son's side. Just then Team Robinson arrive on the scene. Laser pistols drawn but the ruler sees them and commands them to hold their fire, which they do. The ruler lowers his voice, telling his son that it was wrong of him to end the contest, and he asks for forgiveness. Quano glances at his father as the ruler continues to explain that it was he who lacked courage. He feared that his son would be defeated, but declares that there is no dishonor in defeat. A man does his best, and that is all that can be asked. Wow. The boy is truly heartened by his father's words, and his pride seems to be restored. He asks his father if they should fight the monster together. The ruler is honored to join him. Unfortunately, we don't get to see that fight. Instead, in the final scene of this story, John and the rest of the Robinson party decide that the alien king and his son have unfinished business that's best handled alone. They depart the cave, leaving us with a feeling that whatever happens to that poor, harassed cave monster, Quano and the ruler will come out on top.
4: yeah? I root for the monsters, especially when they're just defending their cave against dictators and slave owners who intend to murder an entire family of earthlings. And for what? Daring to win a child's contest? Besides, we never hear from that ruler of the cave guano again, so why should we assume they survive? This could be a rare instance of continuity in Lost in Space, and the reason that we don't see them is because they're slowly passing through the digestive track of that cool cave monster. And good riddance! I have a feeling that somewhere in the universe, a slave plant. And it is now celebrating Independence Day. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: before we take a minute to discuss the cliffhanger for this episode, Kurt, give us your thoughts on
4: The Challenge. Well, I can't say it was one of my top ten episodes, but it sure is good from start to finish. Both guest stars deliver great performances, the fighting is exciting, and even the comedy is top shelf. I liked the monster even though he was a mashup of recycled costumes. And those cave scenes are very atmospheric and the use of sound is A+. What with the snake sounds being especially creepy and all. I also enjoyed the political incorrectness of it all. A reminder of how crazy we would seem to aliens and how equally crazy they would seem to us. So even though I've rewatched this episode several times, I enjoyed it repeatedly. And what more can you ask for in a good TV show? up. Yeah, I liked it too. I thought
0: it had a very good story and the themes were pretty well developed. The action really sold it for me and the comedy. I thought it, it was all around a good balance of both and I really enjoyed that Volta Blade duel. I thought that was very well played. I too liked the monster. I think I would have liked to have seen that original fight as it was scripted but, mm-hmm. you know, eh, they did the best they could within the limitations that CBS allowed so that's kind of how it goes with Lost in Space and, and again, I thought the cast was great. I really like Michael and Sarah and I'm glad they say Kurt Russell for this part versus Davy Sims I think he was cast perfectly in that role it's just a shame that we never got to see them again in later seasons
4: yeah that was too bad but you know a monster's gotta eat something
0: (laughs) (laughs) indeed a cave monster that eats guano imagine that (laughs) touche
4: well it was a fly it didn't have a fly yet it makes sense hey it it
0: makes perfect sense right
2: yeah (laughs)
0: Before we finish, we see the cliffhanger at the end of this episode. The scene opens outside the Jupiter II campsite. Dr. Smith is concentrating on putting the finishing touches on his latest artistic masterpiece. As Penny and the robot observe, asking for the Unsure Girl's verdict on his work of genius, she dodges by admitting that, well, she doesn't know very much about paintings, but the robot does, and he's eager to give his opinion. Smith allows it, but instead of the expected praise, our pre-planist Picasso gets another earful of the robot's computer laughter <laughs> mm-hmm. enraged smith banishes the robot but before he leaves John and Don arrive on the scene. They see it, but they don't believe it. Smith offers the professor a closer look at what we can now see as the doctor's weird abstract artwork. Well, they don't understand it and neither did I, but just then, the robot warns us of a dangerous storm approaching fast. Before they can all get inside the safety of the ship, the wind nearly blows Smith's masterpiece into the next county. Instead of leaving it, he foolishly goes chasing after it. With the wind reaching hurricane strength, John tells the others to take cover while he runs to rescue Smith. boy! The professor tries to corral Dr. Smith away from his loose masterpiece and back in the spaceship, but then the camp's large water tank begins to buckle from the gale force winds. A second later, the tank topples off its platform and barrels after John and Smith steamroller style. But before we can see whether or not they manage to dodge the wayward water tank or wind up flattened like flapjacks, the freeze frame comes in to tell us that this adventure is to be continued next week. Same time, same channel. Kurt, those Robinsons never seem to go more than a couple of weeks without some sort of crazy
4: weather, do they? <laughs> I can't wait to see how they get out of this one. That's for sure. You know, I'm beginning to feel like Florida has something in common with pre I was watching this episode the same time Hurricane Michael was raging outside. Then right about the time the tower toppled over, our power went out. So life imitates Smith's bad art, I guess. I
0: guess. Wow. Mm, crazy coincidence. So, Yeah. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of Alpha Control. Join us again next time when we will be reviewing the 23rd episode of Lost in Space titled The Space Trader. Until then, take care, and we'll talk to you soon. Good night, Kurt. Good night. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again, And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.